0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. seat. Hey, everybody. How are we doing today? Good? If you're new here this morning, we are in our second to last week on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. If you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, we're going to have a lot of it on the screens. And so far, this is where we've been. If you grew up, you've probably heard of the Lord's Prayer. You might have memorized it. Even if you didn't go to church much, it's just something we used to do. And it goes like this. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us... This day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then today we get into this line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Today we're going to have a chat about what temptation is. It's why I wore the tight sweater this morning, everybody. Yeah? Kidding, right? That joke worked 10 years, 20 pounds ago, but what we're going to talk about Is what temptation is. What I wanna do today is I wanna talk about what temptation is. I wanna talk about what it isn't. I wanna talk about God's role in temptation and take a a brief sidetrack into the nature of temptation and the nature of God. Talk about what it means when we say God don't lead us there. Does God lead us there in the first place? And then I wanna end by talking about what it means to be delivered from it. I wanna end by saying, how does God deliver us from the temptation that sometimes we fall into? Before we get into the text, we're going to spend some time getting ready to get into the text. And that means we've got to do some work uh, on ourselves. We come to Crossroads on Sundays, two goals every week we say it. We want to know God. And all that means is we're going to study the scriptures. And we're going to recognize as we study the scriptures, I will never come to an end understanding of all that God is. And that is not scary, that's beautiful. Because if I really trust God to deliver me when I can't deliver myself, he's got to be bigger than me, I hope. Yeah? And then two, we want to experience God as we worship, as we open the text, as we trust the Holy Spirit to speak in and through God's word to change us. Because that's why we're here. That we might leave today knowing more, experiencing more, and looking more like Jesus than when we came in. And the beauty of that in a culture that oftentimes builds up critics, we say that we are in this journey together, that you are going to sit here in just a sec and pray to yourself that the Spirit might work in and through His Word in your life to reveal truth, to convict, to encourage, to equip. It's this beautiful process that we get to play in together this morning. And so we're going to take a couple minutes and we're going to pray and I'm going to ask that you pray silently just that God doesn't work in you. I'm going to ask that you pray silently for me that I make no more awkward sweater jokes. Okay, fantastic. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for this morning that we can come together and open your word, that we can experience and know a God who's good. If we're questioning the goodness of God this morning, I pray it confirms it as we get into the scriptures. I ask that you, Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts, that you convict where conviction is necessary, that you equip where it's necessary, that you encourage all the time. So I'd ask that if you're comfortable just take a couple of seconds and pray to yourself and ask that God might show up through His Spirit to show you how He's conforming you into the image of Christ this morning through His scriptures. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that God works through my work and my words, that it might be encouraging, it might be equipping might be beneficial for us all. We might leave this place knowing more and have, about God and having more confidence in God because we sat here together this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Matthew 6, we're gonna read it again. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, and forgive those who trespass against us. It's this prayer that builds. If you've missed out on the context, Jesus is hanging out with talking to, in one of his most famous sermons, in Matthew 5 to 7, he's talking to religious leaders and his followers, and he's saying, you guys have missed the boat when it comes to prayer. You just don't get it. What they did was they put words together and they thought the more words they put together and the bigger words they put together in the right order, it allowed God to listen and answer more. And Jesus says, you've missed the point of it. That's not what prayer does. To be honest, it doesn't matter what order you pray things in. I know there's acronyms for that kind of stuff. God's saying, I I don't care what order you pray and I want your heart to be right when you pray. That's what I see and respond to. It's not necessarily the words you use, but what you mean when you use the words you use. And so Jesus says, hey, let me tell you guys how to pray. Pray like this. And he walks us down his formula, bad word, but his idea of the elements that are good in prayer. And he starts by saying, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your will be done here. Kingdom come here. May your influence expand in our present place. And what he means is quite literally understand and know that you have confidence when you pray because you are God's kid. And so if you're ever scared to pray, man, just remember how much you love it when your kids come and cry out to you. There's never a moment when we should be scared to pray to a God who's our father and who loves us. And he says in that moment where we feel commonality and connectedness to God, remember who he is. That's why we pray in the first place. He's hallowed and we're not. So God is good and responds and knows and loves, but he's also bigger and can handle the things that we come to him with. And so it's our father who we pray to. And when we understand our proper perspective of God's position before God, we can ask him for stuff in a way that's good. So if we understand God as being a good father who we need. He says, pray that you might know that you need me every day. Give us our daily bread every single day. And we talked about, the hardness of daily dependence in an affluent culture a couple of weeks ago. How difficult that is for us to acknowledge that I don't need me, I need somebody outside of me, that I can't provide and create all on my own, that I need to re- rely on God to do those things. And the last week, we talked about the idea of forgiveness and trespasses. And what we did was we walked through the idea of really what forgiveness is and what sin is. And We interpreted that word trespasses a couple different phrases that people use or debts or sins because the idea of trespasses is what he was trying to communicate, which is sin is a violation of the right of somebody else for my good, not their good. It is personal and it is harmful and it is hurtful. And when we sin, we hurt God. There's just no small way around it. And so we said, if we understand that our sin hurts God and he still chooses to forgive, how can I not, if I understand the gravity of my sin, do the same thing? And so out of that, we move into this phrase that says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, and there's this common idea of temptation that kind of centers, anchors our text. And in order to understand what temptation is, you got to understand who we are. Because in, intrinsically to the idea of temptation is attention it's attention of who we were to who we're becoming, it's attention that we were something and God called us into something else. We see it in Ephesians 4, verse 22. It says, You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. Paul says in Ephesians, This is who you were. There's... Ample scriptures that talk to who we were before Jesus. It says, before you were the child of God, before God made you new, you were something that you're not proud of now. You were an influencer of evil in your world. You don't have to be anymore. You didn't live in God's ways and rhythms. You were corrupted. (laughs) That's not who we are anymore because we find Jesus and he gives us this identity. And he says, I define you not by who you were, but who you're becoming. I look not at your bad deeds, but Christ's righteousness. And then two verses later in Ephesians, when he fleshes out this idea in full, he says, and ignore that guy and put on the new man who's been created in God's image. And there's the tension in temptation. It's do I live towards the person I'm becoming or the person I was that I'm not proud of? Temptation pulls us back. Temptation says, live more like who you used to be, not who God is creating in you. Temptation says, live like the old man. God says, live like who I've created you to become. There's this tension of what temptation does. And it it centers around our idea of identity, right? It's like, I'm a dad now, and sometimes in the morning, (coughs) I will hear this kid cry before I want to get up. And I will think to myself, this is a bad dream. And I will have to remind myself, no, no, wait, That is my child, that is my child crying. I'm a father now and that means something, you know? So I can't just lay here in bed and lay here in bed and say she'll be just fine because of who I am now, my new identity, it calls me into action. Temptation says lay in bed because who you are becoming is not as good as who you once were. It pulls us back instead of propels us forward into God's good design. So when we talk about temptation, it's those things that cause us to forget our calling and pull us away from our purpose. And that sounds grandiose, and that sounds big, but every little decision we made, either pu- it makes, either pulls us back or pushes us forward. Every single one. And temptations are those moments, those one, those singular moments when you sit and you have a left and a right and we decide, do I live into who I'm becoming or do I live into who I was? It's decision time. Lead us, not into temptation, this idea that tension abounds in our text. And so before we go forward talking about the idea of God leading us there, we have to establish that tension exists. I know you have it in your life, I have it in mine. Who do I want to become? Who am I living towards? And so when we get into our text, lead us not into temptation, I want to to talk through a little bit this morning of, of a theology of temptation, Because for me, this this tripped me up growing up, right? It's this idea that I say these words, God, lead me not into temptation, but if the purpose of temptation is to pull me back to where it came from, why would God lead me there? Why would a good God lead me to a place that's threatening to who I want to become in him, to who he wants to create in me? Why would God do that? And to understand that, to understand that phrase, we have to understand the nature of temptation in God. So let's establish some things that we know to be true in the scriptures. One, we know in the scriptures, we're going to be in James 1 for a little bit. We know in the scriptures that God cannot be tempted. And it says in verse 13 of James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Here's why. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Temptation at its core, the tension exists because it's trying to pull you back into something you thought was good, but isn't good anymore. God doesn't have something that he was. God doesn't know what that desire is in the first place. So when we say God can't sin, what we mean really is not just that God can't sin, it's that God can't even be tempted by sin because temptation implies a desire that God doesn't have to go back to a person he never was in the first place. It's called the impeccability of God. God does not have the ability even to be tempted because that idea that we're tempted with something that we thought was good was never good to God, so he has no desire to go there, Right? So when you take preaching courses, they they tell you to use stories that make your audience like you more, right? They tell you to, to use stories that are personal, that we can connect with, that we can form a common bond with. I am not about to do that, everybody, all right? Here's the deal. It'd be like this. When we talk about God and temptation... I don't care how thirsty I am. I don't. I don't care how thirsty I am. There's one thing that if I'm running a marathon in the desert, which I will never do. I will just sit there and wait on death. But if I'm running a marathon in the desert, I don't care if I haven't drank in three days. There is one liquid in this world that still will not be tempting for me to drink. And that is, here's where we're going to find disconnect in the South, tea. Iced tea is disgusting, Okay. It tastes like watered-down something. I don't even know what that something is. And you know what's worse than iced tea? I'm about to say it, everybody. Sweet tea. All right? That's right. It's been fun being your pastor. It's been a heck of a nine months. All right? Didn't think it'd last this long, if I'm honest with you. But here we are. I do not in any way have any affinity or desire for tea. I never have. My family loves it. My mom used to do the whole like put tea on the driveway thing for like four days. And I don't understand what that was. My brother goes to Starbucks seven times a day and gets these large venti something teas. My family loves tea. And from when I was a kid to now, I actually think it's one of the most disgusting liquids there has never been. There will never will be a desire for tea in my life. Here's the point. Is that when we say can God tempt us? We have to understand that God can never be tempted because he doesn't have that desire and if he can never be tempted, he doesn't tempt us either. God cannot sin, but back it up, he not only cannot sin, he can't be tempted because the desire doesn't exist in the first place. So when we're talking about what we know in terms of temptation, we start with the fundamental nature of the character of God, which said he can't not only even sin, but he can't even be tempted because the desire doesn't exist. But it goes on. It doesn't just stop But God isn't tempted. It says in James, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. And he himself tempts no one. So again, we're talking about what it means when it says God lead me not into temptation. And I wanna make sure we understand that's not saying that sometimes God leads us into temptation because the Bible's pretty clear that God doesn't lead anyone into or God cannot ever tempt you. And here's why, because tempting intrinsically implies something bad. It implies that I'm trying to pull you back instead of propel you forward. And it's not the business of God. It's fundamentally against his nature to do so. It says in First Peter 15, like the Holy One called you, God called you, be holy yourselves in all of your conduct for it's written, you will be holy because I am holy. It's both things that we see that God does not have any sin in him. He can't be tempted and then he's calling us to the same. If God's going to tempt us, meaning pull us back from where we're becoming, then it implies that God doesn't want us to be holy. It goes against his nature and his character. But you know, sometimes I get, The ideas I have for God in my head here mixed up with who God actually is. You know, and I transpose those. And so, sometimes I think that God is like a teacher. And and I don't know where I thought this, but growing up in school, I always thought that teachers loved, like not just liked, but took great joy in taking a big red pen out and marking up my paper. I thought the more that I got wrong on tests, the more joy they had when they graded. And that might be the case with really problem students, but that's a teacher issue, right? The problem is, then I became a teacher, I remember that, I think it comes from the idea that, I don't know if you guys ever did the trade and grade thing growing up. It's just when teachers didn't want to grade your quizzes and they'd say, pass it to the person on your right and grade theirs. I adored when people that gave me their papers failed. Okay? And it's not because I'm, it is because I'm mean. I'm just competitive, right? It meant, that I bet, that it meant that I beat somebody on that quiz. And I thought that's how our teachers felt and that's how God felt about us. And he puts these things in our way to trip us up just so he can look over at and say, see, I told you that'd trip you up. I knew you weren't ready. I knew it. And then somehow, in some way, take joy in our pain. But that's not the God that I see in scriptures. It's not a good father. Because then I became a teacher. I taught for one year, at a private school in Denton, part-time, and I was working here, too. It was an eighth-grade class, and I taught a theology course, and, man, I remember, you just learn to love these these students, and you want them to do well, and because I believe in the information, because I believe it's good for them, I want them to learn it. It's not like math, right? I believe in this, and so I think it's for their good, not just because, Right? <laughs> And so I literally want them to learn and love the stuff that I'm teaching. I gave my first test and it came back and the average, the average grade that I graded was a 59. <laughs> and I learned two things from that. One, I should not teach. And two, and two I, I learned that I wasn't happy when they failed. I, I wasn't happy when they failed because I didn't want to pull them back into something they were. I wanted them to see who God wants them to be, to learn more about theology. I want them to, when they come to tests, win. So when we talk about the fact Of testing or tempting, when we talk about God's role in it, we have to understand there's a couple different words that are really similar. One is testing and one is tempting. And God absolutely tests, but it's different than tempting. Testing is the noun in the Greek and tempting is the verb. And they imply two different things. And we see it in James 1. It says in James 1, Uh, Verse 2, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. That trials, there's the same word, really broad word in the Greek for all sorts of things that might test you. And here's something we have to acknowledge, that God does allow us to be tested. He does. God allows moments in our life that challenge where we are, that challenge our faith. And here's why. Because when we're tested, we grow. We don't grow without them. I would never have memorized all the stuff if I didn't know there was a test on Friday. And what God wants, his good, isn't that you stay where you are, but that you continue to grow and become. And if that means you're going to get tested along the way as ultimate good, isn't that you stay where you are, but that you look more like Jesus tomorrow. And so tests aren't bad. Tests are for your good. So this weekend, uh, my wife was at some church's women's retreat. And so I got a lot of extra time with the kiddo, you know? And I was so joyful all the time. And... When I get ample time with my kiddo, I take her to my favorite places, even though she doesn't know it's my favorite place, but that's okay, and so there's a food store, a sandwich shop in Dallas that I love. I mean, I love, and it's in this old Italian market, and everybody that works there is Italian, and you go to the back, and you order a sandwich, and so I go to get my sandwich. I will drive far, far lengths for good food. I just will. I had nothing else to do, right? And so I take my kid. And we get to the little counter and this old Italian woman walks up and she looks at my kid and she says, oh my gosh, your child is beautiful. I said, thanks. And uh, she said, how old is she? I said she turned six months, about a week and a half ago. And she looks at me and she says, oh my, you were going to have to beat the boys away (laughs) and I said she's six months old (laughs) and she said still and I said yeah but she's six months I think I got some time she said it comes faster than you think I said but let's just pretend like she's six months sandwich lady and I have some time with my daughter in my sandwich shop before I have to worry about all the boys and then she looked at me and she said it starts in kindergarten and I said come on I said, can I please have my sandwich? You know, and I'm just I'm trying to enjoy this ideal moment with my kid and my sandwich without being worried about all the people that are trying to steal things from my daughter. And I thought to myself, I'm never letting her leave, right? I'm going to lock the door and say, you'll be just fine. Let's chat when you're 30. God is good, okay? Here's the problem, that's not a good dad because that doesn't inspire growth. God's best good for us isn't that we stay the same, but that we grow, and to do that means I gotta let my kid go to kindergarten where all these boys are gonna try to be all over my daughter, you know? I thought I had till high school. It's this idea that if we love our kids, that we'll let them, we'll let their faith be tested. It's, even though we do everything we can to help them succeed. So when it says that we will be allowed tests. Yeah, God does allow tests, but his intention with the test is never to pull us back. It's always to propel us forward. And he's sitting there hoping, waiting that we might be propelled in our faith. That's why it says in the latter parts of verse two and three in James, it says, no, consider it joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. He paints this picture that God allows tests, but the tests that he allows aren't for our regression, but for our good development of maturity. It's so that we might look more like Jesus, not that we might regress. But then we get this other word later on in James 14 that we've read a couple times. It's verb, and it literally means to tempt. And we see this this, this interplay between God allowing tests and then us being tempted. In Matthew 4, Jesus is going into the wilderness. Right after his baptism, he's going into the wilderness for his temptations. He had three of them. And it says literally in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So God allowed it to happen to be tempted, not by God, but by the devil. This we have to understand is that when we talk about tests, it's God allowing. When we talk about tempting, it's the devil actively trying to pull us back into who we were, not who we're becoming. And so we see it in the story of Jesus. We have to understand this idea of the devil tempting, the devil being what we call evil or the source of evil in our world. In this case, it's literally the devil that tempts us. It's those things like we defined that pull us back and take us away from our calling and purpose. It says in James, it continues on, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. God tempts no one. It says, but here's where temptation comes from. But each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. So sometimes we fall because we're human and there's this tension between who we're becoming and who we were that pulls on us all the time. And we take steps backwards instead of steps forward and then we blame God for it. It says in the text here that he's tempted by his own desires. If you have an NIV, it says by his own evil desires. The word there um, in the Greek for evil actually doesn't exist. What it really means is you're tempted by your over desires or you're tempted by your grand desires. And and really what it's doing is it's saying that, you know, when temptation happens is when your desires that caused evil take over the ones that are pulling towards good. It's this idea that we have desires deep down in us, desires for money and for power and for fame and lust for all sorts of things. And when we let those overtake or come out of balance with how God designed our world to be good, that's when we fall into sin. So often the idea of temptation revolves around the old evil influence in our lives that we're trying to step away from as we step towards Jesus. And it says in James that we're tempted when we take desires that, guys, oftentimes, and this is why it's tricky, are good. So we've talked about the idea that God made us to work, that we were made to be people that work. that work wasn't a byproduct of the fall, but God made us to do those things. But you know what happens? We take a good desire for work and make our desire for work greater than our desire for our wives or our kids or our families. And then we see sin creep in because those desires are out of balance with God's good desires for our world. And so I think the threat to us as we talk about temptation is taking a good desire and making it a great desire at the expense of who God called us to be. It's the idea of lust in the first place. Lust is not bad intrinsically. Lust, a great passion for God is good. Lust for my wife is holy. Read Song of Solomon's. It is full of lust. It's wrong when the lust for other people's wives creep in or the lust for a certain thing takes over my lust for the good things. It's when we Out of whack, the desires that God gives us. It's when we make one greater than all the others. And so James says here's when you're tempted, by the way. It's when you are enticed by an unweightedness of your desires that God gave you. It's this idea that we don't understand the desires within us and what they should be. And so, what it's doing is it's saying, when you have those moments, don't blame God because God doesn't have those desires in the first place. Look inside. It's like me saying, you know what? I blame canes for the 10 pounds I put on since my kid was born, okay? It's the sauce's fault. It's not the sauce's fault. You know whose fault it is? Mine. Because I eat the sauce too much. I'm not blaming Cain's. It's like when we get mad or frustrated or flip out of an angry moment that we shouldn't have where their spouse is like blaming our spouse because they said the magic word. It's not your spouse's fault. That'd be yours. It's this idea that sometimes we put the blame of us regressing and not stepping forward on other people's circumstances or situation. And what the scripture says is that's not a them problem. That's a you problem. It's when your desires overtake you in a way that's not weighted like God wants you to weight them anymore. So when you fall into temptation, it's when you give into, to, you overweight your desires. And it's something, by the way, we, we have this kind of wordplay, we say fall into temptation and it's <coughs> in the scriptures, but I think that gives it a bad connotation, like we didn't mean to, you know? But really, uh, the story of the scriptures, pain of temptation, is that it's absolutely not passive but active. So in Luke 22, we see Jesus talking about it with his disciples. And he, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he looks at a couple of them and says, Stay up with me and pray. And, and he says, When they came to the place, Jesus said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. That word fall there literally means to enter or to exit. So again, you get this word picture that it's passive, but Jesus is actually saying, don't step into temptation. Jesus is saying, don't step into, don't enter into temptation. That's something we have to understand, is that temptation is something we're in those moments when it's the old man and the new man, that we step one way or the other. We don't fall in anything. We actively step into temptation. And my question would be, know you're on-ramps, right? Know those places that beg of you to walk backwards instead of forward because we step into them. Know where they are. That's just wisdom. My wife and I do this thing, and it was forged after a couple of years of marriage. Um, we don't have difficult conversations after a certain time in the evening because we realize that nobody wins, all right? So literally, if it's 11 or 12 o'clock, I can't remember when it is, we also don't step that late anymore, but we need to readjust, make it like 6.15, but... But there's a time of the day when we're both tired and nothing we say is good and the best thing we can do is know our on-ramps is stepping into temptation and say this is not going to happen today. Live to fight another one. Literally sometimes, <laughs> you know? And so we say, hey, let's just call it and let's go to bed and let's wake up in the morning. It's this idea that we don't fall into temptation, we step into it. And so when it says, lead us not into temptation, it's saying, lead us not into those places that I might step into a situation where it's easier for me to regress to who I was than who you are making me, than who I'm becoming. So it's this common idea that we blame God for the places where we're being lured by our own desire and we can't because God doesn't know what those desires are, he doesn't have them. And there's an author that I like and he says, Lead us not into temptation, just tell us where it is and we'll find it, you know. The idea that oftentimes we blame God or we blame a situation or a circumstance and really it's just our desires that were intrinsically fallen manifested itself in any circumstance or situation. And so what happens is really temptation leads to one place. Temptation leads to sin and sin leads to death. It finishes, James finishes his thought in verse 15. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. When we give in to the desire, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Really what we have to understand is God's role in temptation is all about motive because sometimes you can say, well, really, there's not a difference between tempting and testing. There's a huge difference between tempting and testing, and the difference is the motive that God has. God allows testing to build up our faith while Satan tempts to tear down what God is trying to build up in the first place. One says, I'm pulling you back to who you were, and one says, I'm propelling you forward because you have to live life because I love you so much that I don't want you to stay locked in your room for 30 years. Your best good is growth if it looks like Jesus on the other end. So God's saying, yeah, I'm gonna allow you to experience life and live out your faith. God says, that's your best good. So there will be tests that come your way. There will be tests that come your way, but I will be with you all the way. And here's what we have to understand and kind of fall back on is that we think these moments that God leads us to maybe where we might come into testing and I would probably make a pretty strong argument that those moments are all moments, you know? There might be some things we're pulled towards more than others, but every single moment of every single day is either going to be a test or, or um, a temptation. Every moment of every single day you can use to look more like Jesus or you can use to look more like who you used to be. That is your decision as we walk out our faith. John Piper says it like this. He says, that's what life is. Endless choices between belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience, but almighty God forbid that I would yield. Hold me back from stepping inside the temptation He says, all our experiences are tests from God and all of them are temptations from Satan. So what it is, is an understanding and a realization that every moment of every day I can use to propel me forward or pull me back. Lord, lead me not into temptation. So God doesn't tempt. In no way does God tempt us because he's good and because he loves us and because he's growing us. And temptation doesn't grow, it pulls back. God does allow testing. Because that's how we grow in the first place. So what that does, it allows me to look at this text a little differently when it says, Lead me not into temptation. The idea of being led anywhere is a very Hebrew concept. They relied on God to be their leader and they followed. They relied on God to lead them to places that were good. That word lead there is seen a couple other times in the New Testament. The most notable one is there's a story of a guy that couldn't walk or move, the paralytic, and and his friends pick him up and they take him to Jesus. But the room is so full that the only way they can get him to Jesus is to cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. Literally it said there, same word, that his friends led him to Jesus. Jesus they picked him up and took him there so when it says God lead me not into temptation what he's saying is God don't lead me because I know you lead me because you're my good father don't lead me to the places where I'm unable to say no to who I was limit those as I'm tested because I know I need to grow limit those places where I can't see myself overcoming as I want to push into who I'm becoming so let me earn some of your trust back as good Texans. I also hunt, okay? No sweet tea, but there is hunting. So you can balance that out yourself, yeah? And, and I, uh, I, used to, I used to hunt a lot more before wife and kids and a buddy I hunted with. And, and there's a couple hundred acres that we go to about 30 minutes from here. And we go dove hunting and there's a couple different water places on the land or duck hunting and dove hunting. And, and he's got a truck and I have a Honda Accord Coop. Everybody. It's a manual transmission and it's got two-wheel drive and they're both in the front. Okay. And so every once in a while we'd show up and for some reason either he'd be down somewhere or I would have to follow him because I have to leave early, or there's some situation where I would say literally follow me. And I was like, We're gonna drive off-road on a couple hundred acres, and you want me to take my Honda. Right? You know, this was not made for this. And he'd say, you're going to be fine. And I'd say, I don't think you understand. You have a truck. Your wheels are as big as my doors, right? And he'd say, no, it's going to be fine. I'd say, John, it just rained and it's going to get messy. He said, I won't take you by those places. I'd say, if you're going to lead, you need to lead me to the places where I won't get stuck. And he would. And he'd say, fine, we're gonna go around this big way or I've scoped it out and here's a dry patch here and here's a a wet patch here and we'd avoid some of the wet ones because he knew I wouldn't make it through. When he says, lead me not into temptation, we're literally begging God as he leads to limit the amount of temptations we experience because we know he's good because we don't wanna experience the consequences or the weight of sin because we just realized what it was and asked to be forgiven from it. It's this idea I read, this week, a few people <laughs> used a common example and they said, it's kind of like if you're with your kid, let's pretend, let's give a couple things up for common knowledge. One, kids like candy, okay? Two, kids eat too much candy. Let's just assume those things are true. It'd be kind of like your kid who loves candy, who eats too much candy, who candy isn't good for them. It'd be kind of like him coming to you and saying, when you're in the supermarket, mom, dad, I really love candy. And I think if I walked down the candy aisle, it'd be too much for me, please, please, please when we walk around the store, avoid the candy aisle, right? It's that idea that we trust and love God, that he leads us to the places that even though we're tested, we're not tempted to take a step back. Saying, God, protect me and help me to the best of your ability while you're growing me, you know? And that means I got to make some choices sometimes, and sometimes I might fall backwards. John Piper, I'm sorry, John Stott put it this way, the sinner whose evil in the past has been forgiving longs to be delivered from the tyranny of its future. It's this idea that we understand the weight of sin. We understand its consequences. And as followers of a good father who have been forgiven, we want nothing to do with that again. So God, lead me not to those places where I might go this way and not this way. But here's the thing is that we do sometimes, (laughs) you know, As much as I want to not sin, as much as I want to not fall into temptation, as much as I want my desires to not overtake God's good, it happens, and it happens all the time. That's the tension we talked about of temptation is, I really want this, but sometimes this is super shiny, and I want to go that way too. I am torn between the old man and the new man. And that's why he follows it by saying, lead me not into temptation, but in those moments where I'm going to fall into it, deliver me from evil. And when he says evil there, just a quick side note, literally he means evil one. And Matthew, when he uses that construction, it means Satan. And this is not a sermon about whether Satan's a real being or not. I think he is. Jesus thought he was. The disciples thought he was. The Bible says he is. But... What it is, it's saying that Satan is the source of all evil. So whether it comes directly from Satan or whether it comes from a side source that isn't Satan, it still stems from Satan. So every time you're tempted, I don't know if Satan's actively doing anything to you, that's pretty arrogant, but I do think that if we're actively tempted, it's either Satan or it's a byproduct of his evil that he's spread in our world. I know it's 32 degrees outside, but summer's going to be here next hour and it's going to be 119 degrees, right? Right? And it's kind of like the idea that you get in your car in the summer and everything's hot and you touch your steering wheel and you burn your hand and you get really mad at the wheel. The wheel didn't cause it to be hot, but it's a byproduct of the hotness, which was the sun. So all evil starts in a place that is Satan and then spreads outward. And when he says, deliver us from evil, he's saying we want to be more a part of the solution and not the problem. God, lead us not to the problem again. So he says, deliver us from evil that idea of deliverance, I want to get some practical application of what that deliverance looks like. It literally means to scoop up in the Greek, right? So, so you get this idea that it's like you're drowning and somebody picks you up out of a pool that you fell in, out of the ocean, out of some water. It's like you're over your head and drowning and God scoops you up and says, let me save you because flailing isn't doing you any good. So he says, deliver me from the evil one or the influence of evil in our world. And so I wanna talk for just a sec about, about how God delivers because sometimes I think we miss it. Sometimes I think we see evil and we don't understand that God does deliver. I think we miss his deliverance or how it works. And so what we can do is when we're caught up in sin, when we're caught up in temptation and moving this way and not this way, if we don't understand how God delivers, we don't understand how or what to press into. And so let's talk for a second about how God delivers. And so one of the ways I think God delivers that he's pretty upfront with in his scriptures is he delivers through the power of his scriptures. <laughs> It says in John 15, Jesus is just about to leave and he's talking to his disciples and he's about to go to the cross. They don't get this at that point and he's going to leave them and he's saying, this is for your good. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna find some tests here, but I promise I'm doing this because this is better for you and he's praying for them to God and he says this in John 15. He says, I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong in the world just as I don't belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Here's what the truth is. Your word is truth. It's this idea that if you want to mitigate temptation and its power and its influences, press into the truth of the scriptures. And here's why. Because the disciples were about to look around and not see Jesus anymore. And they had a choice. Believe what I see or believe what I read. Believe what I see or believe what I know to be true about the scriptures. And then we have that same choice every time. So God says, I deliver you through the power of the word because as we study, as we press in, that becomes more of our reality than what we see. It's called eyes of faith. It's this beautiful picture that I can mitigate the effects of temptation and evil if I press into what I know to be true in the scriptures, even if it doesn't look like it. There's a quote by Martin Luther. It goes like this. It's one of my favorites. He says, you can't help birds from flying over your head, but you can help them from building a nest in your hair, right? The idea, this is what temptation is. I can't help from being tempted, but as I press into the truth of scripture, and maybe not what I see and feel all the time, as I press into what I know to be God's goodness as he's making me into the image of Christ, less and less those birds have an influence or impact in my life. I can't help being tempted, but I can help from dwelling on the temptation. I can press into what I know to be true. James says it like this in a couple chapters later. He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. (laughs) It's the truth that as we press into the truth of scriptures, our passions become what the scripture's passionate about. But if you press into the desires of the old self, the temptation, your desires never change. I was talking to a friend of mine and, and she said that Shared this thought years ago, and this analogy stuck with her. It's like a road. She said, if you drive on that road every day, and every day you, you drive down the road, then it's, it's prevalent, and it's impactful in your life, but if you stop driving down a road over time, what happens is trees overgrow it and shrubs grow up through it. And if you stop over a long, long time, I was in Ireland a couple of years ago and I saw this happen to somebody's entrance to their house, there was this road and it hadn't been driven down in a couple hundred years. And at this point, everything was overgrown and, and, and literally roots had grown up and cracked through the concrete and trees and it started to grow up in the middle of the road itself. And here's what happened is that road was undrivable because we ignored it for so long. What they're saying is the less we give the desires of temptation the more or the the less influence or impact or pull they were having in our lives how are we delivered through living out and living into and believing the truth of scriptures I think a second way that we're delivered and I think we see it every week I think we're delivered by the community of God being the community of God we say at Crossroads, one of our values is you can't do life alone. And what we mean by that is don't buy into the lie that you can do life without friends, without family, without people, without people that God has put in your life because it's a common grace of God. It's why I love coming to this space on Sunday mornings because I'm surrounded by people that push me towards who I'm becoming in Jesus and not who I was before him. And I need that. So even in those moments when we're tempted, we trust in the people around us that God put there to pull us out and to push us towards Jesus. There's a friend of mine, I'm sure you have six or seven or eight or 10 or 12 examples in your own life, but let me give you one from mine. There's a friend of mine in college who, um, he's one of my best friends now. I think I've talked about him before. I really didn't like him in college. I didn't like him. I met him, we were, I think, sophomores, and, and he, was, um, he was just really annoying to me. He was very, very loud. And let me tell you something. I don't love loud people because if you're loud, I can't be. There's only room for one, everybody, All right. And so I remember he was really loud, and then like college kids, you don't have a lot of money, and so you don't have a lot of clothes sometimes, you find one thing that you really like, and you wear that bad boy out. I've done it, you know? So we had this one shirt, and it was yellow, and I think it was Urban Outfitters, and it said, I have a black belt in keeping it real, and it had a karate guy, you know? I swear I saw him 20 times, it's the only shirt I saw this kid in, and that just made me more annoyed with this man, right? So fast forward to our senior year, still didn't like him because I was super Christ-like, and I didn't like him, and and we were out one night um, with some friends, and I had to get back to study, and so I said, hey, is anybody going back right now? He said, I am. I can give you a ride. I said, well, if it has to be you, okay? And so I got in the car with him, and we got to talking, and and to this day, I believe that was set up by God, or at least, you know, we stepped into that, and then God used the moment, because we just started talking about our experience at school, and we both kind of had a similar one, which was tough. We talked about how we were trying to actually keep all the rules at Moody this semester, which I was not good at. I was really good at breaking them. And so we sat in that moment in that car when we had all these commonalities we didn't know we had. We said, hey, here's the deal. Here's what I want to do is no matter where you're at or what you're doing, if you ever find yourself in a moment, in a compromising moment, in a moment of temptation, we can either go this way or go this way, step back, be propelled forward. If you find yourself in those moments, call me. No matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the space. And we started doing that. I'm gonna tell you guys, man, without giving too many details away, I needed it. There was no guilt, there was no shame, there was, hey, I'm in this moment and I don't know what to do and I know what I should and shouldn't do and he'd literally say, I'm on my way, I'll be there in 10 minutes, you know? And to this day, we do the same thing. He's in Chicago, but to this day, he'll have a bad day with his wife or kids or I'll have a bad day with mine and I'll call him and say, hey man, I'm <laughs> I'm struggling right now. I'm struggling with anger, I'm struggling with what I wanna do to fix this problem, I know what I should do to fix this problem and we'll sit there and pray for each other read scripture to each other, remind each other who God called us to be, not who we were, and propel each other forward. It's the beauty that God delivers through the community that he's given us. Know that. So we talk about it all the time at Crossroads. And then finally, I think that when we talk about how God delivers, ultimately I think he delivers through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's something we can't forget because that argument isn't one that stops with the here and now, but propels us forward to look at a brighter future. John, in 1 John, he puts it like this. He says, Dear children, you are from God and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. He makes the case and says that the Spirit of God residing in you, even though it doesn't look like it, is greater than your temptation. Even though it doesn't feel like it, is more powerful than any power that's pulling you back, not propelling you forward. What he's saying is a Spirit that's in you is better. Know that you have it even when it doesn't feel like it. There was a, a couple years ago, one of the greatest sports years of my life was when the University of Texas won the national championship. It's one of my top five sports nights of my life, right? And I remember that, that year when Texas had a good football team. And every passing year, I just love that one even more because it's been a rough go. By go, I mean decade. And so there was a coach, Mack Brown was the coach, and, and I remember that year, they were playing at Oklahoma State. And if you're a Texas fan, you don't love Oklahoma State. And... You don't hate them either, but you don't love them. And so remember they're playing Oklahoma State in Oklahoma State, and they were not they did not have a good first half. I think we were down by 21 or something like that. And in college football, if you don't win almost every game, you don't play for the national championship unless you're Alabama. And <laughs> pot shot. <laughs> They've earned it though, for real. So it was halftime, and we're down by 21 on the road. And they pulled Mac Brown over to interview him. And they said, Are you scared? What's going on? At that time, we were ranked top five, I think, and um, Oklahoma State wasn't ranked very high, if at all. And Mac Brown, I love this. I'll never forget this moment. He looked at the reporter, and they said, are you afraid you might lose? And he laughed, and he said, no. And they said, why? And he said, because we have Vince Young. And then he just walked away, you know? And if you didn't know how that story ends, Texas won the national championship because the first play out of halftime, the very first play out of halftime, Vince Young took the ball 80 yards in a quarterback draw and ran and scored a touchdown. And then he took over the game. What Mac Brown knew that nobody else knew was his player was better than all the other players, and he could trust in that when It didn't look so good anymore. What God's saying is when it doesn't look so good and all you see is the influences of evil in your world, trust and know that what the Spirit is and does is greater than all the things you see around you. This is how he's ending the prayer and how he builds the prayer. It's his idea that the whole Godhead, the Trinity, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is pulling for our influence in the world to be good. So, So when you come to me and you say, hey God, give us our daily bread, Create in me a desire and a need. Forgive us our trespasses and then give us power to overcome and be delivered from evil. What he's saying is we we enact God the Father as creator and sustainer. God the Son as the forgiver of sins on the cross and God the Spirit as the power to, to overcome. John Stott puts it like this and I love it. He says, if it's through the Father's creation and providence that we receive our daily bread, through the Son's atoning death that we may be forgiven and through the Spirit's indwelling power That we are rescued from the evil one. So Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray this way. Know that there's attention pulling you back and attention propelling you forward. Know that exists. Know in those moments that I am there with you, know in those moments that I'm. That I'm allowed testing, but I am never tempting you because I want you to go forward. And know those moments, even if you step back, that I will rescue and deliver because I am greater than the influences of evil that you see. And that's gonna propel us forward because one day God's saying it's evidence that I've already won. It's this beautiful picture that God's saying that through the power of my Holy Spirit, we will overcome evil. And every single day, with every experience we have, It might be a test, it might be a trial. We get to choose to live into who we're becoming, not who we were. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's this picture that God's painting of the tension that exists in us and the hope that we have as we walk out our faith. I want to end with a quote by N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians. He says this, to pray deliver us from evil, from the evil one, is to inhale the victory of the cross and thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day, against the forces of destruction within ourselves and within the world. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May we live into who you've called us to be and remember that you've already overcome and that we can be influences for good in a world where we see evil all the time. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your goodness. I'm thankful For your leading, I'm thankful that you allow us to grow through tests. I'm thankful that you're bigger than any temptation I might see or feel. And as we live out our faith, we live out your influence of good. In those moments when we fall, I pray you deliver. I pray that you deliver through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the people around us. I pray that we recognize and celebrate those moments and I'm thankful that you're good in the middle of it all as we end this morning, and we know that you take all moments and make them good for your glory, I, I pray that gives us confidence in your nature that isn't tempted, that can never sin, but that calls us into something that we're becoming, which is the person and work of Jesus, our hope. And he proudly sings in his name, amen.